uh, the book of Acts chapter 11. And while you're finding that, I will just read a couple of verses from the book of James chapter 2. But you find Acts 11. So I read from James 2, verses 5 to 7. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Isn't that a lovely phrase? That noble name by which you are called. And then in Acts 11, uh, reading from verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, those were the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. There are multiplied millions of people the world over uh, who call themselves Christians. Christianity is without question, statistically, the fastest and the largest growing movement on earth, either secular or religious. In many places, the term Christian is instantly and almost universally recognized and is highly esteemed and appreciated. And yet, of course, in other places, Christianity is disdained and hated and persecuted. So where did the term Christian originate and what exactly does it mean? What is actually, in fact, a Christian? Well, we saw there in Acts 11, 25-26, that believers were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, throughout the New Testament, Christians have been called saints about 60 times, disciples about 30 times, believers about 80 times, and brethren at least 200 times. But you may be surprised to know that in all of the New Testament, only three times were believers called Christians. So we're going to look at those three occasions this evening 
and see what we can learn from them. Of course, multitudes profess the Christian name, but they do not possess the Christian nature. They say they were born in a Christian country. They go to a Christian church. They sing Christian hymns. They even may pray Christian prayers. They were brought up in a Christian home, but many of them are not yet Christian in the true biblical sense of that word. So what are the distinguishing marks then of a true Bible-believing Christian? First of all, one who belongs to Christ. Antioch in Syria was roughly 300 miles from Jerusalem. It was the third largest Roman city in the Roman Empire apart from Rome itself and Alexandria. It was a large city of some half a million of a population. Very influential, extremely rich, very cosmopolitan, but it was also an extremely sinful city. It was the sin city of its day. Their goddess was Daphne, and all kinds of wicked perversions would be performed in the temple uh, in honor of Daphne. Its main street was reputed to be four miles long, paved in marble, with pillars and colonnades the whole way, and actually had their own street lighting, not electricity, of course. But as an ancient city, it was far beyond most other cities. And here we see that Christian missionary evangelists, particularly from Cyprus and Cyrene, they took the gospel to these Greek-speaking Jews in verse 20. And we saw that God mightily blessed their efforts. Now, it's hard to believe, but at this moment, that the apostles were still in Jerusalem. I'm really not showing much really interest in going far beyond that. And God had to move upon these Christian evangelists in Cyprus and Cyrene, rather than the great apostles, to go there to this awful, wicked metropolis and there to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a blessing, what a harvest came in from the preaching of these men. And so large numbers, it says in verse 21, came to Christ. And then the news got back to Jerusalem and Barnabas was sent out to investigate. Now you have to understand that uh, as yet the apostles were quite narrow in their thinking. And there was a lot of legalists at the headquarters in Jerusalem. And so anywhere else where God moved, it was treated with suspicion. Was it genuine? Was it real? Was it scriptural? Was it the Spirit of God? Or was it just flesh? Or what was it? Uh, and so it was a long way away from Jerusalem, and the word had got back, and so they decided, well, we've got to investigate this. If God is really in this, well, we need to know, and if He isn't, we need to know. And so they sent Barnabas, who was a man, who was a good man, who was full of the faith and the Holy Spirit. Who better to send than Barnabas? And then we discover that when Barnabas got there, he was absolutely thrilled with what God was doing. He instantly recognized this was the hand of God. These people had so radically changed from the life that they were having to the life that they now have, 
Only God could have done this. And so it was easy and it was right then for Barnabas to say, this is the hand of God. This is the Holy Spirit at work in these lives. But then, having stayed there a little bit, he began to recognize, and, and thank God he did, that even though these men had come in and preached to them, they were, they were typical evangelists. They were wonderful at getting people saved, men and women. But when it came to teaching and establishing and training, then that wasn't their gifting. So who better, Barnabas thought, who better to get than Saul, the Apostle Paul? Who better to get than him? Here is a man who's got a tremendous gift, great ability to communicate and to teach. And so he goes as far as Tarsus. He gets him and brings him back to Antioch. And there the both of them stay for a year and in that year, he's teaching every day, and he's training them, and he's building them up, and he's, he's formulating a church. And that's what Paul the Apostle did. He went around, he evangelized himself, then he established the church, and he pastored a while, and he set men in place, and he moved on, and he pioneered somewhere else where the gospel wasn't preached. And so who better to get than the Apostle Paul? And that's what happened. And so it is in this city, among these people, that the name Christian was first coined. Now, if you consider this was probably somewhere between 13 and 15 years after the church was born. This is the first time in all, well over a decade before believers were actually called Christians. And it was in this pagan city of all places, Antioch. Now, little suffix, little Latin suffix, I-A-N, after Christ and Christian means belonging to the party of. It was probably used by the natives of Antioch to distinguish between the many, many Jews who lived there and now these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews, who are now getting saved. Probably hundreds, if not thousands of them are coming to Christ. And so they were now being called Christian or Christ man. If you're a Christian, you're a Christ man as opposed to being anybody else. Uh, perhaps it was used initially maybe as a nickname, or maybe even in a derogatory term, maybe as a put-down. But however it was used, it certainly stuck, and it has stuck to this day. And so, Christ man or Christ woman, someone that belongs to Christ, so it was evident they were preaching Christ and people were hearing about Christ and these disciples were followers of Christ. Notice they didn't call them churchians or biblians or doctrians, but Christians because Christ was at the center and the heart of everything that they did. They were Christians in word. They were Christians in walk. They were Christians in worship. So these people were so radically changed that even the pagans around them recognized that whoever this Christ is that they talk about and preach about, he certainly changed their lives. So we'll just call them Christ men, Christ women, Christians. And James says that noble name by which you are called. Isn't it great to be called a Christian? something that we should be very, very proud of. Somebody said if you're arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
many people are being arrested for being Christians today. Every day I'm on the internet, I read about Christians in Iran and different places who are being arrested or persecuted in India and North Africa and different places for no other reason than they're called Christian. Even if they're just a nominal Christian, even that very name is enough to incite hatred and persecution against them. And so first of all, a Christian is one basically who belongs to Christ. Secondly, a Christian is one who witnesses for Christ. In Acts chapter 26, verse 28 of Acts 26, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now the the backdrop for Agrippa's statement covers several chapters of the book of Acts, which we obviously do not have time to go into. But the story was that Paul was accused by the Jews of blasphemy and desecrating the temple, which according to Jewish law was punishable by death. But because Rome was controlling and Rome was governing, the Jews did not have the authority to put anyone to death. And so what they would do is they would drum up some charges and haul you before the Roman courts in the hope that Rome would find you guilty and that Rome would execute you on their behalf. And so, the Roman governor Felix, his wife was Jewish, heard Paul's case, and when Paul reasoned with Felix of temperance and of righteousness and of judgment to come, the Bible says that Felix trembled. And it literally means his knees were knocking. He was so impacted that his legs went like jelly. And he said, go away for now. And when I have a more convenient season, I will call for you. That's in Acts 24, 25. And then Festus, who succeeded Felix, he also heard Paul's testimony to the court. And he too didn't know what to do with him. Now they had a good idea that these were charges that was trumped up. And... Of course, they wanted to keep the Jews happy. But the trouble was that Paul had Roman citizenship. And they just couldn't do what they liked with a Roman citizen. And Paul had the right, if he so desired, to make his appeal unto Caesar. He had the right to go to the highest court in Rome, which was Caesar himself. Roman citizen had that right. And so this was very, very tricky for them how to handle this. And so he didn't know what to do, and Festus didn't know what to do. Felix didn't know what to do. Remember, Pilate was in the same position with Jesus. And how they brought Christ on these false charges in the hope that Pilate would listen, agree with them, sentence him to death on their behalf. 
And Pilate didn't want to do it. He knew what they were up to. He knew very well what they were up to. He says, I find no fault in this man. Why are you doing this? He hasn't done anything wrong. And they saw that they weren't going to get anywhere with their religious arguments. So what did they do? They turned it political. They says, yeah, but he's making himself a king. And we have no king but Caesar. And as soon as Pilate heard that, he knew he was in trouble. It was checkmate for him. Because to go against that would cost him his job, maybe his head. And so he caved in and he gave in. And yet the rest is history, isn't it? And so they didn't know what to do with him. This was a, a political hot potato for the Roman governors. But then King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, they pay a visit to Festus. And he tells Agrippa of his problem prisoner, who now has been under house arrest for two years. And Agrippa desires to see Paul too and to hear from him. I mean, this is quite an event. This has stirred up a lot of, a lot of talk within the city. And so in Paul's defense before Felix and Festus and Agrippa, well, really wasn't a defense of Paul, but it was a defense of the gospel, and Paul took it as that. Paul took his opportunity in front of these three men to defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody better to do it than the Apostle Paul. And so Paul was able to present a very clear, simple, reasoned presentation of the hope of the gospel. He feared no one. And he was going to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian is one who is a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. One who will speak on Christ's behalf. Now the chances are that you or I will not be hauled up before a court. Uh, but you never know. You never know. Things is turning against Christianity in the Western world. And uh, how long will it be uh, before preachers are hauled before a courts? We know that people in the workplace are being hauled before courts and uh, for wearing crucifixes at work and all the rest of it. And you wonder how long it will be. And we know that street preachers in England has been arrested and has been fingerprinted and DNA taken all the rest of it. And the police had absolutely no right to do it. There's no law against it, actually. Uh, but the police thought there was. And they took their opportunity. And so on and on it goes. But a Christian is one who is a witness for Christ. Acts 1 1 to 8, you shall be witnesses unto me, even to the very ends of the earth, you shall be my witnesses. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 2, it talks about Stephen being a martyr for Christ. He was the first Christian martyr. And the word for martyr is martus and martyr. The word for witness, I beg your pardon, is martyr or martus, from which we get martyr from. Now you can be a living martyr or a dead martyr. Stephen happened to be a dead martyr. But if you're a witness for Christ, the chances are that at some point, uh, someone will come against you as a witness for Christ 
And in that sense, you're a martyr. A living one, but a martyr nonetheless. And so, a Christian is someone who witnesses for Christ. Now, Acts 26, 28 is a problem verse. Theologians are a little bit divided on what Agrippa was actually saying. Was he being sincere or was he being sarcastic? We're not exactly sure. Was he simply sincerely saying, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian? Or was he sarcastically saying, if you change the tone of that, was he saying, you almost persuade me to be a Christian? And people can treat us with that attitude, can't they? You're talking to me about religion? Or you're talking to me about religion? A sincere way? Or a sarcastic way? Or some believe that he was simply saying, in so short a time, you hope to persuade me to become a Christian? Almost, you persuade me to become a Christian. There's lots of almost Christians. Almost persuaded. Almost have accepted Christ. But it's like saying you're almost pregnant. You either are or you aren't. There's no gray area. There's no in-between. Sure, there's not. You can be as close as you like. But unless you are, you're not. <laughs> I don't know whether that's good grammar or not, but you get the message, don't you? So almost is not enough. Remember that Jesus is the door to heaven. And Judas kissed the door to heaven, but he didn't go in, did he? He'd been as close as anybody could have got, but he didn't go in. Ivor Powell, great old Welsh preacher, says four things about a gripper's encounter with Paul. He talks about his faith. Paul says, you believe the prophets. But this is head faith, not heart faith. And there's a difference. You can believe all the Bible stories, can't you? but your life will never be changed until it gets from your head to your heart. Until you make that decision, that choice. Ever Paul talks about his fear. See, to become a Christian would invite ridicule. This was a very, very high official, King Agrippa. For him to become a Christian was going to invite a lot of ridicule. It's going to cause him lots of problems not only within his family, but within his rulership and all the rest of it. And oftentimes you find that the reason why people do not receive Christ as Savior is oftentimes a lifestyle issue. They know fine rightly, if I become a believer, something's going to have to change. I can't keep going on the way I'm going on. Now, there are people who claim to be Christians and who think it's all right to live any old way you like. But it isn't actually. People say, well, I'm a Christian and I've been a Christian for years and I've done this and I've done that and I've done the other. I'm a Christian, but you're not very Christ-like, are you? A Christian is somebody who's Christ-like. And so, 
However, Paul talks about his folly. He listened and apparently did nothing about it. So far as we know, so far as history records, he did nothing about it. He heard it plain, clear, simple. In fact, whenever Felix heard it, his knees shook. But this man heard it and he did absolutely nothing about it. And there's going to be many people that you will witness to and they'll do absolutely nothing about it. But our job is to tell them. They can't make them. We can only tell them. But there'll be that one person perhaps that will do something about it, that will listen and that will receive. And in his fate, he never heard Paul ever again. Maybe this was his last chance. Maybe. Maybe he never got another opportunity. And that's the trouble, isn't it? You never know when you get your last opportunity. You never know. You never know. Unless you're literally on your deathbed and your last gasp, you never know. And so whenever we share the gospel this Sunday, Joyce was telling me just not so long ago, if I may use this as an example, how that, because Joyce shares Christ in that charity shop all the time, it's like a mission down there. People comes in all the time for prayer. Not right, Joyce. All the, every day people comes in for prayer. And there's a, a man come in one day. Uh, he had a serious alcohol problem. And she really, really felt, really, she talked to him many times before, but she felt that day, I must, I must talk to him today. I have to talk to him today. And she did. Do you know that was the last time she ever got talked to him? Was it the next day or the day after Joyce he died? Somebody came in two days later. Somebody came in and said, "Did you know so and so has died?" And that might have been his very, very last opportunity. It's a serious thing, isn't it? Agrippa never heard Paul again. So a Christian is someone who witnesses. For Christ. A Christian also is someone who suffers for Christ. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. Well, let me read from verse twelve. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As Christians, if we are reproached for the name of Christ, 
At that moment, although we may not feel it, and we may not even welcome it, and it may feel horrible, but at that moment, the spirit of glory rests upon you. If we're being blasphemed, or if he is being blasphemed, and somebody's getting at us as believers for his sake, that actually, Peter says it's a wonderful thing. An entirely different attitude about it than we have, haven't they? And so, it's one who suffers for Christ. Philippians 1.29, For you, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. John Wesley one time got off his horse and he started to pray because nobody had thrown stones at him for two days and he didn't like it. Something's wrong here, he thought. Can't be doing with this. <laughs> Entirely different attitude, isn't it? You say, well, we're very fortunate, David. We live in, in, a, in a place where nobody's going to throw stones at us or they're not going to be standing outside the church tonight with rocks in their hands to... Uh, but actually, maybe if they were, maybe if they were, maybe, maybe then people would take Christianity a bit more seriously in this country or anywhere else where we get a free ride, basically. A friend of mine was preaching in India. He says, I looked out the window and I saw a big crowd. There was, there was a good crowd inside the church. I looked out and saw a big crowd and thought, oh, that's wonderful. A lot of people's come to hear me. The pastor said, they're waiting outside to stone you when you go out. <laughs> How would you like to be that preacher? But he says, you're okay, the police is coming. But he says, they might agree with him, so we don't know. <laughs> I said, well, did you get out of it? On scared. He says, well, just about. Just about. But he says, they were an angry mob. An angry mob. He says, it wasn't a very pleasant feeling. But if that had been Peter or Paul, they'd have been rejoicing. <laughs> and say, we're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so, a Christian's one who suffers for Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15, verse 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If somebody in your workplace, for no other reason that you can think of, other than you are a Christian, and they make life very, very difficult for you, rejoice because the glory and the Spirit of God is resting upon you. They might know that. But the Spirit in them is against the Spirit that's in you. And that would be a good indicator that God is pleased with your life if the devil rises up and hits your guts. Amen? Say, David, you're awful hard tonight. I'll not be able to sleep tonight thinking about that. Hebrews 13, 13, Therefore let us go forth to him 
outside the camp bearing his reproach. Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Of course, Peter says that some of our suffering is self-inflicted. Did he not? He says, verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their party is blasphemed, but on your party is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So as long as people are getting at us and don't like us or will persecute us simply because we're a Christian, not because we're obnoxious, not because we're rude, not because we're a pain in the neck, because then they have every right <laughs> to be nasty, but simply because we're believers and we love the Lord. And that's a good thing. So, Exodus 27, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Whenever we take up the name of the Lord, let it not be in vain. I'm not talking about swearing and all that. That's not really what that's talking about. Whenever we take up the name of the Lord, let it not be in vain. Let it be with purpose. Let it be with pride. And let come what may because of it. Alexander the Great, that great Greek emperor and warrior, that at one time had conquered all the then known world. One time a soldier from his army stood before him to be court-martialed. He had committed crimes. And Alexander looked at him and says, what is your name? And he said, Alexander, sir. Alexander said again, what is your name? Alexander, sir. And Alexander, in a rage, shouted at him, I say, what is your name? And the third time he says, Alexander, sir. And he says, you stand before me, guilty as charged of the crimes you committed and you must pay the penalty. Either you change your conduct or you change your name. For nobody that bears my name can commit the crimes that you have committed. So either change your conduct or change your name. We bear the name of Jesus Christ, don't we? We're Christians. So either change your conduct or we change your name. If we're going to be called Christians, then we're going to have to live like Christ lived. In Revelation 2.13, Jesus speaks to the church at Pergamos, and he said, you have kept my name. They had some faults, and he rebuked them for them, but he says, you have kept my name. Revelation 3 and 8, he speaks to the church at Philadelphia, and he said, you have not denied my name. 
You've kept my name and you've not denied my name. That's a wonderful testimony, isn't it? God spares us if we live to however long we live. At the end of it, if we can say, I have kept his name and I have not denied his name. Amen? We're going to be closed just in a moment. Look at Revelation chapter 7. After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. These became 144,000 blazing evangelists. And they were sealed on their foreheads. In Revelation chapter 13, Verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Uh, this is the false prophet specifically speaking about here, and causes the earth and all those dwell in it to worship the first beast, who's the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which, was, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or in their foreheads. The devil never had an original thought in his brain. Where did he get this idea from? Well, we just read it, didn't we? And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who is understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing in Mount Zion with him, with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. There's that 144,000 again. Now look quickly at Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and a servant shall serve him. And they shall see his face. Note it. 
and his name shall be on their foreheads. <laughs> if we get through this life, and if we do not deny his name, and if we hold his name precious, and if we go in his name, and if we preach and witness in his name, then God will be very pleased to put his name on our foreheads. <laughs> that everybody throughout all eternity will know that these are the men and the women who love my son and I have put his name on their forehead. Isn't that lovely? The devil wants to put his kingdom's name or his stamp or his mark and many will receive it. But God's going to put his son's name on us as a mark, as a seal, as a stamp for all eternity. Glory to God. And so a Christian is one who belongs to Christ, one who witnesses for Christ, and one who suffers, if necessary, for Christ's name. Aren't you glad you're a Christian tonight? I know that it's treated skeptically, disparagingly in Great Britain today. But aren't you glad that we're Christians? That we're proud to be called a Christian? Christ man, Christ woman, <laughs> glory to God. And let the world laugh, but we'll have the last laugh. We'll have the last laugh. Let's pray.